Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Judgment Podcast. Hello, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm your host, Wade Padgett. And I'm your other host, Tane Kell. Today, we're going to take up a topic that uh, many of you will know a lot about and many of you will know nothing about, because today we're talking about the use of guardians ad litem in domestic relations cases with children and child custody involved. Yes, and, and Tane and I, are, Tane is going to talk a, a lot, which is not unusual. <laughs> and I'm going to ask a lot of questions. That's because in my circuit, I don't use guardians as often, and I have to make a confession. I've started using them a little more of late, but we are running out of guardians in the Columbia Judicial Circuit, Tane. Yeah, we use them frequently here in Cobb, but, um, you know, we don't have a long list either. And actually, in our jurisdiction, we're we're doing some training and trying to get some some lawyers interested in being guardians. And um, it's it's giving us some other choices and other people because uh, it's work that takes some time. So um, so a good place to start with all this is, is probably telling folks where guardians are described in the code and contemplated within the code. Sure, Wade. So guardians are mentioned in a lot of special circumstances in the code. Um, they're used for a lot of different purposes. The universal criteria for the use of a garden, it, guardian is that they're used to represent the interests of a person who essentially cannot represent their own interests who are may or who may be legally incapable of doing so. So that would include situations, for example, like um, a disabled adult elderly right. who are infirm or right. people who don't speak English or whatever, incapacitated persons. Right. But in this case, I think we're really going to focus our conversation about kids, children, right? That's right. Um, the courts have the power to appoint uh, persons who are a appropriately trained to represent those persons in a variety of situations. So, for example, um, they're often used in juvenile court. And if you look at the statutes, for example, in OCGA Section 1511-105, that talks about juvenile guardians ad litem. Um, They're used in probate matters. Uh, That's in uh, Title 23, uh, 23-4-33. Persons who are not yet sui juris, I always love a good Latin phrase, um, uh, who are not old enough to represent themselves. Um, and they're used, uh, for example, in property disposition matters. Uh, that's in Code Section 29-9-2, things like sale of property. Uh, and then also people with mental illness um, or someone who's uh, incapacitated may have a guardian appointed. Uh, and they're also uh, mentioned in, in part places where you're trying to partition property. So somebody may have uh, inherited a piece of property from a parent or grandparent, but they're not old enough to represent themselves yet. And we're trying to get get that property sold. So those are, are some different places where you might see them. We use them a good bit. And, you know, partitions, I've done some of those. Of course, the better Judge Paget has done a lot with probate. So let's talk for, let's tell the but folks, we are going to focus this conversation on guardian and items today on domestic relations cases. And That's so, right. Tane, let's talk about the the basic definition of a guardian ad litem. I had a litigant the other day call them gals, and then he said Man. gals. Um, I get that all the time. I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan. Not a of fan. It's like I'm not a fan of Durfa. You know. The, I'm so glad to hear you say that because yeah. I'm definitely not. Yeah, I, Durfa just sounds. That just sounds bad. That's like dongle that you talked about in another episode. <laughs> Those so, are just words that don't sound like what they mean. So a you Durfa don't wanna, and you a dongle. Um, yeah. I don't maybe know. you could put your Durfa on the dongle. 
Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. the best place to start when you're looking at the rules concerning guardian ad litems or the uniform rules of Superior Court, specifically Rule 24.9. Absolutely. And it, it goes through and tells us, Tane, when we can appoint them, what their qualifications have to be, and what their sort of roles and responsibilities are. So let's talk, let's kind of stop there. Is there anything specifically that, that strikes you that we need to talk about relative to their appointment and qualifications? Well, I, I think, first of all, in appointing a guardian ad litem, just understand you can appoint a guardian to assist in a domestic rela- domestic relations case in the superior court. Um they can be they can be appointed by the judge that's assigned to that case, um, or anybody who otherwise has responsibility for hearing that case. So, in other words, if you know if somebody's designated to hear a domestic relations case, they have the authority to to appoint uh, somebody. Um, you can appoint essentially just about anyone as long as they have either a been appropriately trained and and that's kind of in the discretion of the judge or maybe your court has a rule about what training is going to be required or the the rule says that you can appoint anyone who is otherwise familiar with the role duties and responsibilities as determined by the judge so it's kind of like appointing a special master in a case you know you can kind of look at the individual person and say i think this person is qualified to, to handle these duties in this case so when you get to qualifications the gall, the 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 gall um, the guardian ad litem shall receive training as provided for or approved by the circuit in which the guardian serves. Tane, do y'all have rules about training? We do. We do. We actually have a standard guardian training program that people are, are required to get a certain number of hours of training in. How often do you do like n- new gall training, new guardian training? We were only doing it once a year, but we have a group of guardians who've been practicing for quite a while, and and God bless them. They agreed to take over that training and try to train the next generation of guardians for us, and uh, they've really been great over the past couple of years doing that. So they're trying to do it more frequently than the once-a-year training that was originally offered. And, you know, there are trainings that are offered outside of our county that would also satisfy this. But essentially, people have to be trained in certain areas, and and the the rule says – it, it has to include these um, domestic relations law and procedure, including the appropriate standard to be applied in the case. Because understand, the guardian doesn't have to be a lawyer. So they at least, though, have to show some familiarity with those laws and rules. Um, they have to have a familiarity with domestic relations courtroom procedure because they're going to be a, a, a participant in the proceedings in court. Uh, they have to understand, the, as the, the previous statute said or the previous rule said, they have to be familiar with the role and the duties and the responsibilities of a guardian. Um, they have to have some training in the recognition and assessment of a child's best interests. Now, that standard ought to sound familiar to everybody. I mean, the guardian's looking out for the best interest of the child, the same as the judge. Um, and, and that's one reason I think they're kind of cool to use. Um, and uh, they also have to be familiar with the methods of performing a child custody visitation or investigation. In other words, 
you ought to know what it's like to go into a house which might not be a particularly friendly house and uh, take a look for the things that you might need to look for. Uh, be willing to do things like open the fridge and open the cabinets and look for whether there's food that's not out of date and whether there's lots more alcohol than there is uh, soft drinks for the children or whatever. Um, there's a few other things too, Wade. Uh, you want to take a look well, at some of that? Well, you just talk about, about some of the ethical obligations and, and, and how you might the relationship between the guardian and the council and the guardian and the court and the guardian and the child, the recognition of some diversity issues in families and individuals and in communities. You talk about the, the base needs for child, for child development, um, their abilities at different ages. And if they're, if they're behind how to, how to address those issues, the family dynamics and dysfunction issues like domestic violence and substance abuse um, recognition of, of issues relative to child abuse. And then you've also got to have at least a working understanding of the available services concerning child welfare, medical, mental health, uh, educational, special needs, any of those sorts of things, just so you can help make sure the parties get where they need to be. Yeah, and it, I think it's important there, and it's not really specified in the uh, in the rule, but it, it is important that guardians ad litem in cases like these would essentially qualify as mandatory reporters. So uh, if you don't know what that means, basically somebody who is required to make a report to the Department of Family and Children's Services if they see a deprivation or evidence of, uh, of abuse or something along those lines, um, they would be required to report that. So it's important for them to know those kinds of things. Um, Tane, we talked so about the, you kind of move to the role and responsibilities. One of the things that I think is important for people to understand is that these guardians are officers of the court. That's right. And that you, has some implications. It really does. I mean, you are appointing them to to be an officer of the court. And, and as I said, they don't necessarily have to be um, attorneys, but they have to be someone who is at least well-versed in understanding what their duties and responsibilities are. Now, as I touched on a minute ago, the guardian is appointed to represent, and this is really the, the overarching uh, requirement of what they're supposed to do. They're to represent the best interests of the child. So this is an individual who is essentially, they don't have a dog in the fight other than to make sure that the child's interests are being appropriately represented. And that's awesome because as I said a minute ago, because their interests align with what you're going to be determining, they can essentially be your eyes and ears uh, to, to a certain extent. You don't direct their uh, their investigation necessarily, but they're out there looking for the same kinds of things you would want to be deciding in the case. Tane, let me sort of go off script and ask you a question concerning yeah. their role and responsibilities. One of the reasons I think that we have, let's be clear, a lot of guardians are used in the Augusta and Columbia circuits, a lot. Mm -hmm. I just got to a point where I thought the role and responsibility thing got twisted up a little bit because it felt like somebody had communicated to the guardians that they were private detectives, that right. they needed to go find stuff. They needed to go look for evidence. They needed to go gather evidence. Is that what you expect guardians to do? do you, or, or is that just what they do as a natural course? Like, for example, I'll never forget. I had a lawyer just berating a guardian for not having gone and gotten the dental records from the child only to learn there were no issues with the child's teeth. Right. But they were trying, I don't know what they were doing, but 
how much of that do you expect for them to self-initiate, go interview people and find the neighbors and the teachers and all of that? I, for me, it's totally case dependent because, you know, if we have a case where we have a guardian ad litem, but there are no allegations of things like alcohol and drug abuse, or there are no allegations of, you know, abuse of the child per se, or, or anything like that. First of all, I might not appoint a guardian at all if there are no allegations of things like that. But secondly, I don't expect them to be going and, you know, getting their their financial records or asking for their financial records to see if they're buying alcohol at the liquor store if nobody's saying they're an alcoholic, you know, or um, maybe even going to get the child's medical records if there's no allegation of abuse or neglect or those sorts of things. Um, I think they have to 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 follow the clues to what has been alleged and what's important in the case. And, you know, the first thing they're going to do is that hopefully in a case, particularly if the children are older, is they're going to sit down with the kids, you know, and they're going to look at them. They're going to listen to them. They're going to engage with them to see, okay, does this kid seem to be on the level that he's supposed to be on educationally and intellectually or that she's, you know, is she relating to a mom and dad the way that I would expect a child of, you know, whatever age to relate, that sort of thing. Do you expect, say though that you did have an allegation of alcohol abuse, and I'm, I'm really asking this earnestly is more than just as a softball for you to hit out of the park in the podcast arena. Mm-hmm. It, if there was an allocation of, of alcohol abuse, would you expect the guardian to go subpoena records and meta and financial stuff? Or would you look to the lawyers to do that? I would look to the lawyers to do that. I mean, again, remember, remember who the lawyer is representing in the case. They're representing the child. They're not they're not one of the parties trying to prove the claim one way or the other. Right. Or you said the lawyers, custody. the lawyers are representing the party. You're talking about the guardian who might also be a lawyer. Yes, exactly. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, but I'm saying the lo- the lawyers who represent the parties themselves, not the guardian, um, they, you know, I would expect them to go out and try to prove their case. The guardian doesn't have a case to prove on behalf of the child. What the guardian needs to look at is, you know, they they are looking at things like which of these parents appears to be the more appropriate parent. Uh, to have the majority of visitation time or, or, or be the primary custodial parent of those sorts of things. And that might involve um, trying to find out, is there really an alcohol problem here that, that I would have to you know, ask the court to put some things in place to keep this child safe or not? Um, and that might involve asking people questions about, well, you know, how, how frequently does this seem to be an issue for this person or something like that? So, again, it's going to be very fact specific. Um, you know, I, 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 some, some cases I think warrant the guardian digging very deeply on behalf of the child. Other cases, I think, you know, uh, visiting with the child, visiting with the parents, going and looking at the houses, seeing if they appear to be adequate, uh, checking some school records maybe, you know, to make sure the child's not missing lots of school or something. But if there's not an allegation of something, I don't expect them necessarily to go to all aspects and, and all that. Because, again, I, I want to point out, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but there's a cost involved, you know, for everything that they do. And so, you you know, you've got to balance that. So one of the things is back to the rules, team that, that I've always kind of made sure people understood is that the guardian's apartment, appointment, excuse me, in other words, their role, it ends when the case ends. They are appointed right. for, the, for the length of this case, not for the child's lifetime or some other random measurement. That, 
Their role is, I mean, by definition, guardians ad litem, guardians for the purposes of litigation. When litigation is over, their role is over. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's an there's an order entered that makes them the guardian for the child during the pendency of the litigation that's going on right now. When the case is closed, that order is no longer in effect. You're absolutely you, right. You actually gave me a copy of the order y'all typically use. I'm going to add both of our orders. I've never compared and contrasted them. They may be virtually identical, but I'm, I'm going to I'm going to add those to the documents that we put up on the uh, website at goodjudgepod.com so that people can read this outline, but they could also grab those orders if that was something they needed for some reason. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm actually going to put up one other one that's a little bit more detailed about the duties of the guardian ad litem. Um, the one I put up is just a fill in the blank order that we've used on many occasions. But I've got another one that has a few more details about things the guardian can do and should be entitled to do and that sort of thing. It's mainly those provisions are mainly in there. So the parties don't balk at some of the things the guardian might ask. Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. You know, some of those duties are set forth in uniform rules, but I do think it helps sometimes to have them with your ink or with your signature at the bottom. I was going to say ink, but everything's e-filed and e-signed and all this stuff now. Um, So all those duties and all those roles are set forth within the uniform rules. Right. What what else do we can we can we move to the written report? Because I'd like to talk about that for a minute, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a provision in. Do you receive a report before the hearing? Well, so so I'll tell you kind of my thought about that, and then I'll tell you what the rule says and what the standard sort of is. First of all, I tell guardians who are involved in cases for me that I do not require them to do a written report unless there are circumstances that demand or require a written report. And I'll tell you why. Because the scope of what most guardians believe they would need to put in that report, which is basically, here's everything I did in my investigation. Here's everybody I talked to. You know, here is all the evidence that I gathered or the, you know, you maybe not call it evidence, but here, here's all the things I considered in giving an opinion. Because let me back up and say one thing. We already talked about that the, that the guardian is a, an officer of the court. They are also an expert. By specifically by rule, it says they are an expert on things relating to the best interests of the child. And so, Tane, under the evidence rules, what does that give you the authority to do? 
That gives them a couple of really important authorities. Number one, they can give opinions, okay? They can say, I think the best parent for primary custody is dad, or, you know, I think that visitation is whatever. I have, this is my opinion. The other thing that they can do is also talk about the basis for how they arrived at that opinion, which allows them to say all sorts of hearsay statements and talk about all sorts of evidence that wouldn't necessarily otherwise be admissible in the case. So as an expert, they have a lot of uh, leeway in terms of what they can get in. But um, but I don't require guardians to give a written report because of quite frankly, the expense involved. What I ask them to do is this. Before we get to trial, I want you to send to the parties a summary of what your opinions are likely to be at trial. Because, And I say likely to be because the way I also conduct a trial is I let the guardian speak last. I let the parties, um, I let the parties you know, put up their case and do that. And there's a really good reason for that. The guardian's not going to necessarily see and hear all of the same evidence that's going to come in at trial. I mean, I don't expect them to interview every potential witness and talk to, you know, every teacher and every psychologist and everyone who might testify. So at trial, they may actually hear some evidence they've never heard, which might change their opinion slightly or substantially. So I have them go last and I say, look, you've, I know you've already given a summary of your of your preliminary, uh, you know, opinions to the parties. Has that changed? And if so, how and why? And so. Um, so I don't have them do a written report. Um, the other reason for that, I'll be honest with you, is it becomes fodder for really nasty cross-examination sometimes. And I don't think that's appropriate for a guardian ad litem. I think that as officers of the court, they ought to be able to say what their opinion is, tell us how, you know, what they did to arrive at that opinion, and that kind of ought to be it. That's That's really interesting because I was looking at the rule where it says, unless otherwise directed by the court. Yeah. Or the appointing judge that the the guardian shall submit to the parties or counsel and to the court a written report, blah, 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 blah. It does. And I have to always remember to tell them that or at least or put it in the order one way or the other, because it's something that I do. And I, I think other people are, are completely different than me on that. I think some people say, yeah, absolutely. I want you to um, write a report, submit it to the parties and submit it to me. The and truth of the matter is, I don't really care if I get their report before the case starts or not. It's it's a bit odd to me to get a report from an expert that I haven't or that that hasn't already been sworn in in the case and and all of those things. But the rule seems to indicate that you can get that ahead of time. It's just always seemed a little strange to me, so I don't normally do it that way. And what's really interesting is that your point of how the nasty cross examination has happened over time, based upon you know you did write this, you didn't write this, the words you the word choice you made, whatever. That's exactly been my experience. Mm -hmm. is that some of the cross-examination was was completely stylistic. It wasn't even substantive on anything that was relevant in the case, but since the report was out there, you know, here we go. And so that's really interesting. So do you do that in a written document? Do you do it in your order appointing, or do you – I don't know how you do that. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I, I try to do it in the appointing order, but if not, frequently what will happen is I'll have a communication from the guardian, which is, you know, disseminated to all of the parties 
asking for direction from me. Judge, are you are you specifically requiring me to do a report in this case, or do you not want to? The reason that that happens is a lot of people now know, a lot of the guardians now know that I don't require a written report, and if I forget to put that in the appointing order for some reason, they'll reach out to me and with notice to all the parties and say, is this a case where you want a written order? Because again, they're going to have to sit down for hours and hours and hours to put together a written report mm-hmm. in a lot of cases. Absolutely. Well, you talked a little bit about what their role is in the trial and that, that they are an expert. And that's actually in the uniform rules. And I think it's actually in the statute as well. Yeah. Um, tell me, I'm, go ahead. Well, let me say one other thing about uh, the trial. The, um, one of the rules says it's uh, it's subsection six or seven. I think it's actually seven, but they messed up their their numbering in the in the rule. It goes from six to eight, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. Um, it's it's yeah. It's actually supposed to be rule. This is rule number six, I think. But um, it says the guardian ad litem shall not be allowed to question witnesses or present argument absent exceptional circumstances and upon express approval of the court. I generally ask the guardian if they want to ask the witnesses any questions, particularly the parties, because, A, they're an officer of the court, and I think they, I think it's not improper for them to ask questions, and B, the answers to those questions may affect their, their opinion at the end of the case if they don't get to ask questions, for example, of a witness they've never spoken to. And so I try to ask them try to let them know that they can ask questions because I don't think it's improper for the court to say they can ask questions. The rule just says they don't have a right to ask those questions. They're not a party, so they don't have a right to ask the questions. Well, you've taken me to the place I wanted to go next, and that is what should have been Rule 7 that I think is actually Rule 8. Right. Do, how often do you order a quote-unquote custody evaluation? Would you say frequently or not frequently? Not frequently. I don't um, either. And and. Yeah. I appreciate what they are. They seem to be really exhaustive, but all, you know, what happened when you were a child and and your medical conditions and how, if your blood pressure is under control and all that stuff, a lot of that doesn't really impact my decision relative to custody, but it seems like they spend a lot of time, effort and money uh, on those custody evaluations. And, and I'm glad to hear that I'm not the only person who's there. No, I mean, it's it's like everything else. It would be a great tool to have if we had the ability to have it in every case. But my goodness, it's an expensive tool uh, to to use. So, you know, I try to do that sparingly. It's the same reason I don't appoint a guardian in every case. Because I'll I'll jump to this because I was going to talk about this anyway. But um, my first and last consideration in appointment of a guardian is... Can the parties afford it? And if so, who's going to pay for it? Because, you know, again, it's going to cost some money to have a guardian. Now, it might be desirable to have it in in a case, but if the parties can't afford to pay the guardian, I'm doing the guardian a disservice because they're going to be chasing this person forever to try to get paid. And I'm kind of doing the parties a disservice, too, because I'm putting them, you know, they're going to be taking money that they might otherwise be able to use to pay child support or something else and and paying money to a guardian. And while I would love to have guardians uh, in lots of these cases, that's a first and last consideration. The second part of that is who is going to pay the initial fee? <laughs> Um, generally, that's whoever asked me for a guardian. 
Mm-hmm. Um, if they ask me for a guardian, my first question is, well, are you going to be, a, are you willing to pay for that or at least pay it initially? And then I always reserve the right to reapportion the fee right. uh, amongst the parties later on, depending on things that I hear and circumstances and all of that. So, uh, but that's a consideration and that's a, that's a service to the guardian as well. Cause they're, you know, they're an officer of the court. They need to get paid, um, in these cases and we don't need to con- create a situation where they can't get paid. So the ex parte piece to this and yeah, that's um, a that's a really big point you know i get calls from from guardians occasionally that that it is an emergency situation mm-hmm. absolutely 100 percent right. emergency situation um but sometimes maybe not oh yeah yeah i so I got a call on a case on July 4th, the actual day, July the 4th. We were not in the courthouse. I was in the mountains of North Georgia um, on my cell phone, which people have, you know, uh, from a guardian saying, I think I've got a real emergency here. And I said, great, let's get the attorneys for the parties on the phone, too, and we'll talk about it. And so we were able to get everybody on the phone and talk about it. Um if we couldn't have gotten all of the attorneys on the phone, whether I would have spoken to the guardian or not, I think I probably would. I mean, it was certainly somebody I trusted to say, this looks like a real emergency. And it was, it was a situation we needed to, to deal with right then. And they're uh, calling on July 4th that they're not trying to work on July 4th either. That's exactly right. Yeah. The, the guardian was also out of town and it was, it was a situation that needed to be addressed. So, um, that's not to me an ex parte. I mean, there are emergency circumstances where, you know, things have to be done and they have to be done right away. What, what I don't want to have is I was told by a judge, (laughs) uh, when I first got on the bench that, I could have ex parte conversations with the guardian all day long that you could invite them into your office, chit chat about how the kids were doing, ask, tell them things you wanted them to do in their, uh, in, in their representation of the children. And, uh, that just ain't so, um, that is in fact, that's the a direct opposite of what the rule says. Um, and it, I mean, it's obvious. I mean, they're, they're representing, if not a party to the case, certainly an important, um, aspect of the case is the children. Uh, and so you can't have ex partes with them. No. And, and, uh, unfortunately that happens way too much. Well, Tane, so you've talked about the payment. Um, is there, does a guard having a guardian does it help you manage the case as time goes on at all because you don't really let the guardian decide visitation do you you don't no, no. you don't ever like say you get to decide the visitation plan or whatever they no, can make suggestions and, and that's just and in fact there have been a number of occasions where the guardian made a recommendation and at the end of the day I didn't do what the guardian mm-hmm. said and Me it too. wasn't that wasn't a you know an insult to the guardian or their judgment or anything it was just that perhaps I saw something in the case that they didn't see now just to be clear you have to consider the opinion of a guardian that's one of the factors in 1993 that's right 
That's right. So, so yeah, if you so, appoint them, you need to take that into consideration in the grand scheme. And I mean, if you weren't going to do that, why would you appoint them in the first place? Correct. So, I mean, obviously it's a consideration, but, and, and I'll just tell you in those circumstances where I've deviated from what the guardian was recommending, I generally make a comment in the order about why I'm deviating from what the guardian said. I don't think you have to do that, mm-hmm. but I think it makes sense that you have an expert who's appointed to represent the best interests of the child. They're deemed an expert. They're deemed an officer the court. And I just think it makes sense to say, but I, I think this is important here and this is why I'm deviating from what they're doing. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Let's talk about uh, the la- kind of the last or the end. You, you touched on this. I mean, the guardian's appointment essentially ends at the end of the case. However, the guardian can also be removed or even early terminated from the case. I had a case recently where the reason the guardian was initially appointed just kind of fizzled. In other words, we didn't really need a guardian anymore. You know, uh, I can't remember if it was because the child had aged out. It wasn't that, but it was it was something along those lines where basically everybody agreed. We don't need to pay a guardian to come to trial on this case. Oh, I know what it was. The parties resolved the custody issue. And so the guardian said, can I be released? And I was like, yeah, of course. And I issued an order saying the guardian's released, doesn't need to come to trial, doesn't need to write a report, doesn't need to do anything else. All the issues that, that related to the guardian service have, have been. To completed. be honest with you, a lot of the guardians can help you, can help the party see other options, I guess, for they lack do. of a better word. And that and, saves and, everybody a ton of money. Oh, yeah. And and one of the things that we didn't talk about, but but is guardians get an opportunity to at least get notice of things like mediations that are scheduled so that they can participate if they yeah, if they need to. And that is a great help sometimes because a mediator is certainly going to turn to a guardian and go, well, custody is an issue. What are you going to say about custody? You know, and it it does help to to uh, get the parties on the right track. You would you know anything about mediations, given that you were certified and are looking to do some of that going forward? Sure. I I think I think having been a mediator for a a good bit before I went on the bench, um, you know, whenever you've got somebody who has a certain level of expertise like this, and particularly one who can participate in the mediation, um, that's certainly a voice you're going to listen to somebody you're going to going to hear from in a case like that. So, Tane, um, is there anything else that that and, and there's a lot of other issues relating to guardians, obviously. Sure. But is there anything specifically that you think we need to touch on relative to guardians? Well, I, you know, as I said, um, I, I like guardians for for several reasons. Um, you know, guardians are essentially, I mean, we don't appoint them to be private investigators, but they do have powers that allow them to dig in a way that nobody else in a case has. They can go to the school. They have the ability to talk to teachers and counselors and uh, psychologists and medical personnel. Yeah. Yeah, Get records and do all of those things. Um, And they can travel. So if you've got a, a, a a parent who lives out of state, they can go visit that parent's home and see what it looks like. Is it an adequate home um, or not? Um, and then um, they can interview witnesses, as I said. And they you can, talked uh, about the hearsay that, that kind of lets you skip some probably unnecessary witnesses, frankly, that, that they can sort of summarize what the neighbor says if their neighbor doesn't have anything, you know, deep right. to add. Right. And and the really biggest thing of all is they are an impartial um, 
person in the center of the case. I mean, we're impartial, but we don't have the ability to go in and talk to people and 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 figure out who's who seems to be telling the truth about the events that have occurred and who doesn't seem to be telling the truth about the events that have occurred and then report back to the court on that. So that's something that they can do. And they don't again, they don't have a dog in the fight. They're there to represent the child and the child only. And so, you know, it, it's of no consequence to them how those chips fall at the end so in wrapping up folks i do use guardians and i and i use them more than i did last time tane and i talked about this topic but i do not do it in most cases all cases more than half the cases because of the expense and time and effort that goes with it and because the cases don't dictate that sometimes however the points that tane has raised today are absolutely of vital importance for the judge to consider when faced with a knockdown drag out. I don't know what the right word is. The, to, to, <laughs> That's a, a hotly contested. A Donnybrook. A Donnybrook of a custody fight. Having that other voice who can go determine not what mom's perception was or dad's perception, but what a perception of a independent, impartial third party should be. I do think that there is a lot of value to that. So, Tane, when you when you tell people to look at guardian issues, there are statutes that authorize guardians. The uniform rules, probably 24.9, really tell us exactly where it is that we need to sort of guide our use of guardians. Um, it is hearing other people's thoughts on guardians – at least initially, has helped me a great deal sort of develop my own thought process about it. You too? Absolutely. And, you know, I think the the bottom line for me is in this job, you need to know what all of the tools that are available in the toolbox. And, you know, domestic cases are particularly difficult cases and emotional and have a lot of elements to them. And, you know, any tool that you can have out there in a particular case that might be helpful, you know, this is certainly one of those really valuable tools that you can use. So, you know, that's just the reason for us wanting to make sure that everybody's uh, aware of it. Well, folks, if you want to see our outlines on this or any other podcast episode you can look at our website goodjudgepod.com you can send us a message at goodjudgepod at gmail.com and with all of that shameless uh self aggrandizement yeah begging for friends (laughs) i'm wade padgett and i'm tang kell don't forget to like us on your favorite podcast platform have a good day thanks folks Well, folks, that's all we have for another exciting and enthralling topic here on the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to the entire University of Georgia College of Law for assisting in our recording. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But nobody can get it all. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Thanks to our NJO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions, and they do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise. 
but please contact someone else with any complaints. But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. You've been doing a great job doing that. We really appreciate the help. You can also visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcasts. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.